Well, good morning. As you can probably imagine from our scripture reading, we're going to be studying this morning from the idea, uh, as, as we have been doing so far this, in this uh, series of studies we've been doing on, on moral issues that are confronting Christians today. And we've, we've now gotten to this idea of divorce and, and how that is something that's confronting us and how that's something that we need to be preparing ourselves and to be studying what God's Word reveals about that. In just a moment, we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, we will be reading from there. And as you turn there, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for for your attendance, to to welcome our visitors as have already been done. Uh, We hope you know that you are our guest. And if there's anything that that you hear that you have a question about, please feel free to ask one of us about it. We would love to, to sit down and talk with you about anything that you see here this afternoon or this morning that you might uh, be wondering about. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank you all for your prayers. As you know, uh, Wednesday night we announced that we have, we have bought a house in Nicholasville and, and we're, we're moving in, and Friday was my last day uh, of my secular work with Lockheed Martin. We have, we have put that behind us, and we have, have taken that leap of faith, if you will, uh, and uh, in our efforts to work with you full time. And we're so very thankful for your prayers and that uh, a little over nine years ago, um, I didn't know, I think it's safe to say any of you, uh, and some of you knew my family, but a little over nine, nine and a half years ago, Holly and I were first married. And, and we were sitting down and we were, we were owners of a house and we were looking at bills and we were going, uh-oh. <laughs> and we were putting a lot of prayers up to God, asking him to, to give us what we need to help us to, to, to guide us in, in this, in this uh, endeavor that we, had, that we had underwent. And his answer to those prayers was the, the job that I had for nine years, and it was a blessing. But in the past couple of years, uh, I've, again, been going to God and saying and, and asking again for that, that blessing. And I, I desired to work for him, and I wanted that opportunity. And, and he answered those prayers again with you all. I'm so very thankful to have this opportunity to, to be here with you all and to work with you. And, and if, I, if I limp around a little bit this morning, it's not because I've been doing cartwheels celebrating that, that uh, leaving Lockheed Martin. It's, it's, it's because uh, yesterday Logan and I went on a six-and-a-half-mile hike, and, uh, and I'm, I'm very much in shape, and that shape is round. And, uh, and I'm learning uh, that maybe my uh, limitations are a little more than, than I uh, imagined. Uh, but that being said, I, we'll get to our topic at hand this morning, this idea of divorce and remarriage. A troubling trend is being revealed. Uh, a recent survey done by the Barna Group showed that roughly, roughly 35%, uh, 35% of those who claim to be Christians, and we'll, we'll use that a little loosely, but those who claim to be Christians claim that, that they have experienced a divorce. That number is right on par and identical with those who don't claim to be Christians. That that shows that Christians and those that are non-Christians are just as likely to, to end their marriage in a divorce. <clears throat> that also showed that of those who, that claim to be Christians, 23% of them are likely to be divorced a second time, likely to be uh, divorced multiple times after that first divorce. Now, as I was reading this, I, I couldn't help but wonder, uh, what is the reason? What is the reason that... that so many Christians don't seem to have a <coughs> excuse me, don't seem to have a concern uh, for divorce. They don't look at divorce 
in, in the light that they should. And I, the only reason I can think of is evidently they don't see divorce as something that can be sinful. Uh, even though Bible scholars and teachers have oftentimes pointed to Jesus' teachings on divorce and how it was a sin unless adultery was involved, few Americans really buy into that notion. They don't really uh, uh, take that part of the Bible and apply it to their lives. They just kind of push that out and say, well, there's another meaning there. There's another reason for this. In fact, only one out of every seven adults, only one out of every seven adults strongly agreed with the statement that when a couple gets a divorce without one of them having committed adultery, that they had committed a sin. What that means is 15% uh, of the population of America, 15% uh, is all that believes that divorce can be sinful. Uh, And if you go a little bit farther, look into both the uh, Protestant groups and Catholic groups, uh, the number was a little more staggering, 60% and 70% respectively, disagree that divorce without adultery involved uh, any sin whatsoever. This survey reveals to me that it's very likely that we need a constant reminder of what God has said concerning divorce and what God has said concerning remarriage. It's an issue that's truly confronting Christians today. And in doing so, I want to start out by just considering what exactly did Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Just what does the Bible teach us? And we'll start out in Matthew 5. (coughs) Excuse me, I apologize. (coughs) I'm just about over this sinus infection, but it's still lingering. In Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. (coughs) Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries the woman who is divorced commits adultery. (coughs) Excuse me. Now many of the scribes and the Pharisees at this time, they taught that divorce was permissible for any reason whatsoever as long as a certificate of divorce was granted. That's pretty pretty similar to what our society today believes. That that, that divorce can be given if someone just uh, we've grown apart over the years. We don't like each other anymore. Uh, the, the, maybe my wife, she's, she's just not as good a cook as I thought she was. She, she burns everything she fixes, and I, I just I don't want to put up with that anymore. I'm going to divorce my wife. Or maybe my husband, he, he lost his job, and he's not trying to get, his, get back into, a, into an employment, and he's just, I don't want to have a part of that. I'm going to divorce him. That's the kind of idea that was going on then, It's the same idea that goes on today, that we can give a divorce for whatever reason. And the truth is, technically, that was the truth. That was was a possibility. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, and the first four verses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who former husband who divorced her 
must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given to you as an inheritance. Technically, according to the law of Moses, a a certificate of divorce could be given to a man's wife for any reason whatsoever. It wasn't just strictly applied to adultery. Because, in fact, we see the punishment for adultery. If you were to look over to Leviticus 20 and verse 10, the punishment for adultery was not divorce. The punishment for adultery was death. So what was talked about here was something less than adultery that they had the the ability to be divorced over. But we noticed in in the verse 4 of this chapter, in 24 verse 4, that the effect, the effect of that divorce, that certificate, was to defile the wife when she remarried. The remarriage defiled her. Keel and DeLitch, these are two commentators who uh, wrote a lot about the Old Testament. They wrote in their commentary on uh, Deuteronomy, the second marriage of a woman who had been divorced is designated by Moses a defilement of the woman, a moral defilement, blemishing, desecration of sexual communion, which was sanctified by marriage, in the same sense in which adultery is called defilement. Thus the second marriage of a divorced woman was placed implicit upon par with adultery. What we see here, that even in, 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 this, in this no reason divorce, no fault divorce, if we want to call it that really, it was placed right on par with adultery. It was something that caused defilement, something that was detestable. Jesus later would teach, that, or Jesus taught then later in Matthew that divorce led to adultery. He was kind of tying those ideas together, but he gave the one implicit time where it doesn't. And that's when fornication was the cause of the divorce. So there's something we need to remember and something that will make the point now. It's important. The divorce did not end the marriage. The, the bill of divorce didn't end the marriage. Jesus described the second marriage as committing adultery. The term adultery implies that the first marriage was still bind, uh, bound by God. And so later he would get into this discussion again. Go over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 9, uh, in the first few verses of 19, uh, we're going to look at verse 3 through 9. Excuse me. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, we read, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And we know that at one point they already believed this. It seems now maybe there might be some sort of disagreement over whether or not he could divorce for just any reason. So they come to uh, Jesus testing him. And Jesus answered. He, said, he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of a divorce, a certificate of divorce, and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that is to say from creation, from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. So as I said, the Pharisees at this time thought that that divorce was uh, permissible if the certificate was given, even though they seem now to differ a little bit, maybe, 
on this idea of if it's for any reason. But Jesus is explaining that Moses only permitted this because of the hardness of their hearts. It was the only reason that he was giving this permission, but it, it was not God's will. From the very beginning, from the time that God instituted marriage, it was not his will that, that divorce happened. And then again, Jesus provides the only grounds for divorce. The only grounds that makes divorce permissible without it leading to adultery. And that is if the innocent spouse puts away his or her spouse for fornication, as we see in Matthew 19.9. So Jesus' teachings on divorce are that there is only one reason for divorce to, to ever happen, to ever be considered permissible, and that is when a spouse is guilty of fornication, of that sexual immorality like we discussed a few weeks back. So in line with this, if this was his teaching on divorce, what was his teachings on remarriage? Well, his teachings on remarriage are found in the exact same passages. Again, he, re he re uh, warned twice, just like he did with divorce, that remarriage can result in adultery. He said divorcing a wife in Matthew 5.32 causes her to commit adultery when she remarries. Divorcing a wife can cause oneself to commit adultery upon remarriage, Matthew 19.9. So the only way to avoid this adultery when remarrying is for the innocent spouse to put away his or her spouse for the cause of fornication. Uh, again, Matthew 19, 9, talking about this. But notice then in the next couple of verses, he suggested that there might be another option. In uh, verses 10 through 12, he said, <coughs> excuse me, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry this was something that they're saying, well, that's, that's pretty tough. If that's what you've got to go through, well, maybe it's better that we just never get married at all. And Jesus answers them in verse 11. says, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born, thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdoms of, kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. This other option that Jesus was talking about, the same option that we discussed about with, with homosexuality, is celibacy. Jesus suggests that celibacy might be necessary for some. It might be necessary to be chosen as a lifestyle to live for the kingdom of heaven. And the only scenario I can imagine of this is one who realizes that they are in an adulterous relationship, they're in an adulterous marriage, and, and are willing to leave it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus allows only one reason for divorce. And he allows only one reason for remarriage when the spouse is guilty of fornication. In teaching his disciples concerning divorce and remarriage, Jesus was clear. He didn't kind of stammer around. He didn't uh, look to the times and try to make justification for them. He was clear and to the point, this is what I say. He said, in the beginning, it was not so. And even now, I I'm telling you, as the, as the Son of God, this is what I'm saying. This is what I am decreeing about divorce and about remarriage. But what about his apostles? What about the apostles that he taught? Must remember that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what they taught about it also adds to this subject. We need to take into consideration what they taught about divorce and remarriage. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10 through 11, where Paul reminds people of what the Lord himself taught. So he's going to go ahead and, and start teaching on this here, but he's teaching the exact same thing that Jesus taught. In verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command you, not I but the Lord, 
A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. He was saying a wife is not to depart her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. He was just saying what Jesus had taught him. What he had learned from the Lord. That it's just not to happen. This is not what God wants. If a wife does leave her husband, she's to remain unmarried. To take that celibate life. And likewise, if a husband was to depart from his wife, to be un- remain unmarried, or to be reconciled to one another. To be joined back together. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about those who might have spouses who are unbelieving. In verse 12 through 16, it says, But to the rest, I am not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is, not, or if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart a brother or a sister. <coughs> Excuse me. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife, a wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? <coughs> what he is revealing here is, is his what's concerning. Marriages with unbelievers. And he's saying believers are not to divorce an unbelieving spouse if they are willing to live with them. But if that unbelieving spouse departs, if that unbelieving spouse puts them away, it says they are no longer in bondage. That means that is to say they're no longer required to fulfill that marital, their marital duties to them. Paul simply was just reinforcing what Jesus taught on divorce. He was reinforcing what Jesus taught and permitted separation only when, when it was initiated in these instances, he had permitted it only when it was separ- initiated by the unbeliever. So we see here in, in his teachings on divorce that he did not go any farther than what Jesus had taught. And on, on remarriage, he talks more. Turn over to Romans 7. Romans 7 and verse 1 through 4. We see in, in this writing that Paul is going to use the law and what the law taught on marriage for the purpose of an illustration for us. In verse 1 through 4 he wrote, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So that she is no, uh, she is no adulteress, though she was married, she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, that we should bear fruit, <clears throat> that she, we should bear fruit to God. He was saying was even uh, the law of Moses taught that a woman was bound to her husband for life. And even if she legally divorced her husband, even if it was legal in the sight of the land, if she put him away and, and, and it was acceptable in the land, it was not saw as something that, was, that broke the bond of marriage in God's eyes. It wasn't legal to God. And so what, they, what he was saying was she was still in an adulterous relationship when she remarried, even, if the, even though the land gave her a legal divorce. 
And this goes back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 4. It talks about, or going back to that idea that Moses was saying she became defiled in the divorce and in the, and in the remarriage. Likewise, Paul only allowed remarriage after the death of one spouse. A little different from what Jesus taught, but not going beyond. In 1 Corinthians 7, just where we were just at a second ago, but later on in the passage, down in verse 38, uh, or excuse me, 39 through 40. Verse 39 through 40. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty be, to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is. According to my judgment, I think I also have the Spirit of God. This phrase, uh, as Paul teaches here about the remarriage after the death of one spouse, he uses this phrase, but only in the Lord. Now some have went on to claim that that means that well, she can only remarry one who is a Christian. But keeping in context with the passage, it seems more likely that it means that, that this is what God's will is. That, as we have heard so oftentimes, till death do us part. The marriage is intended to last till death. But in death, it is God's will that the woman be allowed to remarry uh, whom she wishes. Some also, as, uh, as we read there in, in verse 15, have also taken this to uh, where it said that they are not under bondage anymore. Uh, an unbelieving spouse, if, if the unbelieving spouse departs, that they are no longer in bondage to marriage. Some have said that, that not in bondage means that they are permitted to remarry. But again, looking at, at the context, it doesn't, uh, we don't see that sort of permission being implied in what he was talking about. As we said, he doesn't go beyond what Jesus teaches. He just adds a, a little bit more uh, on the lines of, of remarriage after, after death. So this, uh, this topic of being not alone, no longer under bondage can't possibly apply to, to say that one is, is free from the marriage in that sense. That God somehow, even though he has is, he is claimed that, that once he has bound it together, no man can separate it unless there be an, uh, an act of fornication, adultery, or a death. At this case right here, when the unbelieving spouse departs, the only thing that, that could possibly mean to say that he is no longer under bondage, as I mentioned before, is that they're no longer tied to those marital duties that a husband is to have for his wife, that a wife is to have for her husband. So to say that Paul allowed remarriage on the, on the grounds that an unbeliever left is to put words in Paul's mouth that he didn't use. We see that Paul allowed for remarriage on the death of a spouse. Jesus allowed for remarriage on the grounds for fornication. And those are the only two areas, only two uh, uh, examples that are given to us throughout the scriptures. So other than saying that a believing spouse was no longer obligated to fill marital obligation, obligations towards an unbelieving spouse who leaves, and that death permitted remarriage under certain, some, certain circumstances, the apostles added nothing to what Jesus taught. So when we keep that in mind, that the only thing that was ever taught about divorce and remarriage, that it was only permissible through, through fornication, and that remarriage was only permissible through, through fornication or death, let's look to the idea of divorce and remarriage today. And let's look at this first under the idea pertaining to Christians. As disciples of Christ, we must be faithful to the Lord. We must remember that first and foremost. When we think back of Luke 6, verse 46, uh, when, when Jesus said, "Why So many will call me Lord, Lord, but will not keep the commandments, will not do as I say. We must, and first and foremost, remember that we are disciples of Christ and that we have to be remain faithful to Him first, and then, and then to, our, uh, to our 
physical relationships here on this earth. And that requires that we heed both his teachings and his practicings, as we've read in Matthew 28, verse 20 so many times, that we are taught to observe all that he commanded, not just to know it, but we are to keep the commandments that he gave. And we also must remember 2 Peter 3.18. We are to grow in grace and knowledge. But that means that some of this stuff, um, as we learn it, it's going to be hard. And we can't expect ourselves, we can't expect people around us to, to come to an understanding like that. So oftentimes we, we, we see somebody that's doing something wrong. And we expect them to just stop everything and to completely make that 180. And what Second Peter teaches us is that we all grow at our own rates. And we have to come to understand that. We have to come to understand that even in something as, as, as big as divorce and remarriage, something that has got such a, a taboo on it today, and rightfully so, we need to understand that it's going to take time for people, even in the body of Christ, to come to that same knowledge and to grow. And we need to be working with them and encouraging them rather than discouraging them. As, Matthew, as we read in Matthew 19.20, for Christians it might mean that we are to choose celibacy. If we can't be reunited with that, with that sound relationship that God has, has put together, then we might have to choose celibacy to be faithful to his teachings. And in doing so, if we will live these kind of lives, if we will do that, what we are really showing is Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are showing that God's will is good. God's will is acceptable, and God's will is perfect. We're demonstrating that. And so what God would have us do, what Jesus would have us do in the idea of divorce and remarriage, what Jesus would say is that we are not to be conformed to this world, but rather we are allow Him to transform us into what he belongs for us to be in our lives, especially in our, in our marital lives. But what about non-Christians? What about when we look to the world around us and we see those, our friends, our family who are not Christians and are living in, this, in, in a sinful life, in a, an adulterous relationship? What are we to do with them? Are we to walk to them and, and to call them out and say, you're wrong, you're going to hell, and, 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 and I'm not going to have anything to do with you because the Bible says I can't eat with you. No, no, that's, that's wrong on, on so many levels. We know better than that. In fact, Matthew 16 tells us our first, our first responsibility has absolutely nothing to do with the adulterous relationship. Our first responsibility to them is to tell them about Jesus. That's why we've talked so much lately about evangelism and about the importance of taking the message to the lost. This idea of, of, of marriage and divorce and remarriage should be on the, on the back burner. We shouldn't forget about it, but the first thing that we should be telling people about is about Jesus and about the necessity uh, of, of a relationship with him, the right relationship with him for their salvation. And if they are baptized, then Matthew 28 and verse 20 tells us there is that more teaching that follows baptism. That teaching follows and we are to, to instruct them his commandments on all sorts of things, including marriage and divorce and remarriage. We're to teach them about what he said about that, but also we're to remember that they are going to grow in grace and in knowledge, and they're going to grow at, that, at their level. And we need to be there encouraging them. We need to believe, be that Galatians 6 Christian that bears with the burdens of those around us. We should be willing to work with them through difficult situations. And we must remember in all this is that souls are at stake. It's not a, a petty issue of just our, our preference over somebody else's preference. Souls are at stake when it comes 
when it comes to, to divorce and remarriage. And we can never be guilty of watering down the doctrine of Christ. Jesus could have easily, easily said, yes, yes, Moses said you can give a certificate of divorce for any reason and left it at that. But he took that next step and he said what was right. From the beginning, that was not so. And that's not what I teach. From the beginning, it was not so. And, and as the son of God, I, I'm telling you, the only way I permit this is under these circumstances. These past two lessons, lesson on, on marriage that we did before and this lesson now on divorce and remarriage, have shown us that God intends marriage to be for life. Till death do us part. That when we make those, those vows that we so oftentimes make in a marriage, we, we, are, we are proclaiming what God has already set forth. He intends for a marriage to be for life. And we must remember that it is God and God alone, not the government, not society, not customs. It is God who joins man and woman in that marital relationship. And so when God puts that box around them and says these two are in a union together, God is also the only one that can take that box away. He is the only one that can separate that. He does not release the married from their marriage simply because they get a divorce. He doesn't do that simply because the government, just like he doesn't institute a marriage because the government says so, he also does not break up a marriage because the government says so. The state might recognize divorces. They might recognize, recognize marriages. But to God, they may be unlawful. We think back to what we talked about with, with Herod and Herodias. When God, when, when God recognized that as a marriage, when he sent John the Baptist to them, said, your marriage is not lawful. It's not right for you to have your brother's wife. He recognizes the marriage. He recognizes the divorce, but he does not accept it. We also learn that celibacy is a viable option, if need be for some, for the sake of the kingdom. So when confronted with issues, <coughs> when confronted with issues like divorce and remarriage, oftentimes we're tempted to take the path of least resistance. So many different doctrines and theologies and th schools of thought have spun out of, of a lack of desiring the truth and focusing more on emotions. People who might have known the truth about, about the teachings of Jesus and the apostles on divorce have so quickly changed their, their views when, when maybe a family member like a child or a parent, when they, when they fall into this category, when they fall into these hard times, so oftentimes they've changed their views because it's hard. There's no doubt about it. It's hard to watch family members go through this. That's why, that's why I asked Joe to read that passage in Malachi. God hates divorce. Divorce covers one's garments with violence. He, looked at the, he looks on that and he sees the truth about it. The husband's hurt. The wife's hurt. The children are hurt. All the friends and family around that draw close to them are hurt. It's a tough issue, and when we're faced with it, we will be tempted to take the path of least resistance, to confirm to the standard, conform to the standards of this society, and oftentimes to reinterpret and to reapply the words of Jesus to be socially acceptable. And we might spend some more time on another lesson looking at how so many people have done this through the de throughout, throughout life, creating these different types of, of schools of thought to say that divorce is remarriage, like mental divorce, and things such as that. And we'll look at those things at another time. But what we first must remember is that Jesus taught us what is acceptable. The apostles taught us what is acceptable. And going beyond that is to go beyond the word of God. 
We do ourselves harm, and we do others no good at all whenever we, whenever we water down what they taught. So, so I'll leave you with one last passage as we think about this, as we think about confronting uh, these issues and to face these issues head on. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If we will bury our roots in the truth of the gospel, if we will make that our foundation, he says to be steadfast, to be immovable. If we will sink down in there and say, no matter what, no matter what comes uh, against me, whatever, what Satan throws at me, this is going to be what I hold fast to. Then we will, be, we will be accomplishing the words that he has asked us here, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to not give up, to be strong in the face of adversity. It's no, it's no surprise to me with, with such a, a strict and such a, a, a staunch view of divorce and remarriage that, that the Bible had that it, confront, or that it also applies the same descriptions to salvation. So oftentimes, Christians are, are thought of as the bride of Christ. The church is thought of as the bride of Christ and talked about there and talked about how we are to be faithful, that we are not to be uh, unfaithful, but to be faithful to Jesus and how through baptism... We, were, we, were, uh, we died to the law. We died to that old man. And so the bounds that we had there, as we read in, Rome, uh, in Romans, the bounds that held us there were done away with, and now we were free to be remarried into this relationship with Christ. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe this morning you are ready to be buried with Christ. You are ready to give yourself over to the Lord. You are ready for salvation. Because the fact is, without, without baptism without repentance, without making that confession, then we are lost. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. 1 Peter 3.21 tells us that that is what saves us. 1 Peter 3.21 says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's what we, if that's what we desire today, an answer of a good conscience, salvation, then I, I would encourage you this morning that we stand ready to assist you in that. We stand ready to help you in that if you, if you would only let it be known. And we ask oftentimes at this time that as we get ready to sing this invitation song, number 269, and as we sing this song, if this would be your desire, then come to the front and let it be known. As we sing nothing but the blood, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's let these ideas be in our mind. And it may be in, in some way you have already made that step. You've already had your sins washed away, but you've realized maybe it's something in the idea of divorce and remarriage. Maybe it's some other thing that you, you have been separated from God. You have not been faithful, and you're ready to come back to Him. You're ready to reconcile that relationship. Then again, please let it be known. We stand ready to assist you. Please come forward now as we stand and sing.